Welcome to the Shambhala Sunday Gatherings podcast. Each week, we invite a guest presenter from the Shambhala community to talk about what is meaningful to them or to share a brief Dharma talk. These explorations range from the reality of impermanence, death, and the unknown to how we express and work with joy, contentment, and fearlessness in our daily lives. Presenters offer a guided meditation or contemplation practice and invite reflections, comments, and questions from participants about the poignancy and complexity of our shared journey on planet Earth. Thank you for joining us for this week's Shambhala Sunday Gathering podcast. So I would like to take a moment to introduce our presenter for the day. Today's topic is Buddhism, psychedelic assisted therapy, and the spiritual path. Very potent and timely topic. And our speaker today, our presenter, is uh, Dr. Sarah Lewis. Uh, Sarah is an associate professor of contemplative psychotherapy and Buddhist psychology at Naropa University, maybe you've heard of it, uh, where she also serves as the faculty co-director for psychedelic studies. Sarah is the author of Spacious Minds, Trauma and Resilience in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, In addition to her academic work, uh, Sarah and her husband, Brett, offer psychedelic assisted therapy in their practice, Sky Medicine, in Boulder, Colorado. Sarah has previously served in a number of leadership positions in Shambhala uh, within the Dorje Kasung and as an interim board member. So, Sarah, it is a delight to see you again. We're so glad that you're able to be here today. Um, so please uh, bring it. <laughs> we're so glad that you're here. It's, 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 and it's such a wonderful topic that we're, we're all just really thrilled to, to hear somebody uh, who's in the field really address it today. So welcome. Thank you, JT, for that wonderful welcome. And it's great to be here and seeing some old pals. I feel delightful <laughs> seeing each person um, coming um, online. So great to be here with you all. And um, JT and I were um, thinking, you know, that this is kind of a, I don't know, new interesting topic maybe for um, Shambhala. So we thought it would be, you know, important to definitely leave time um, at the end to make sure that we have um, an opportunity for um, questions, but especially for discussion. Um, And so actually I'd like to um, start the talk um, with hearing from some of you, if you would be willing. And what I'm curious about is um, what your associations are when you think about psychedelics. What are some words or concepts that come to mind for you when, when you think of psychedelics? Um, increased consciousness, uh, the idea of tripping, healing, fun, non-dual experiences, heightened sense perceptions, um, transformative, plant-based, temporary awakening, powerful, deep heart opening, memory recovery, expansion of mind, expansion of consciousness, anxiety. Yeah, definitely. Mind opening, 
loss of sense of ego, new possibilities, being 19 years old in the 70s, love it. The Magical Mystery Tour, strengthening, um, work with addictions and consciousness expansion. Um, okay, thank you so much for your willingness. Summer in Boulder in 1979, excellent. Spinach came alive, awesome. Um, so, you know, part of why I was just sort of curious what people's associations might be, but I think it's also the case, um, you know, that if people come into doing psychedelic work, um, usually there's some kind of, um, preconceived idea of what might happen. Uh, we might say the same is true when people come to meditation or when they come to, um, doing a retreat for the first time, right. They're not just coming out of nowhere, there's some kind of expectation or association of what might happen. Um, and as I'll talk about um, today, you know, it's really important the container or the context or the idea in which um, psychedelics might be used, and that that has a really profound um, influence or shaping in what happens. But I'm guessing that, um, that some um, portion of people here today actually found the Dharma through psychedelics or that there's some connection. Oh, I'm even seeing some smiles. Haha. <laughs> so my guess was correct. Um, um, you know, particularly in the 1960s and 70s, the cross section, right, of those who were kind of using psychedelics in that era and kind of coming to um, the, the Dharma, that there was a, a deep kind of cross section there. Um, and it's, you know, probably the case that many in that generation sort of look back fondly on those days, you know, but are also are maybe happy to kind of leave that behind, you know, and instead seeking what we might think of as a more kind of serious or stable spiritual path. Um, so as someone in the next generation, um, I would actually like to um, honor and really appreciate that generation for all of their writing, um, art music, um, and, you know, even have a, a curiosity of even for folks in that um, generation who may not be using psychedelics anymore. Um, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll talk about what's been called kind of the psychedelic renaissance or psychedelic, you know, reinvigoration that's happening today. Um, might there be some spark of, of, of something important, you know, that actually happened um, back in that era? Um, and so also in this talk, I'd really like to consider, um, you know, I'll, I'll try to give kind of an introduction to the psychedelic field today and what's happening um, in the present. But then what I'd really like to talk about today and hear from all of you is whether there's really anything useful to consider about psychedelics and the Buddhist path um, is, you know, is there actually something important or um, you know, serious, if not maybe pr provocative for us to consider, you know, could there be some linking? Um, there's many excellent writings that are already out there on this topic. Um, so for example, as Alan Badner argues in a wonderful book of essays called Zigzag Zen, um, he argues that psychedelics and Buddhism really share a concern with the same problem, which is the attainment of liberation for the mind. And then I would add, um, you know, uh, liberation as well of others and of society in some way. So there's kind of a shared um, connection between the two. Um, at the same time, there is much to be concerned about, I think. 
Um, and so I'm going to begin our talk before we get into maybe some of the promises or potentials, I'd really like to spend a little bit of time um, exploring what some of these um, concerns might be or um, pitfalls or, or traps that can happen. Um, so immediately, people who are Buddhist practitioners might recall the five precepts. Um, and so these five main, and there's, you know, many precepts that uh, some Buddhist practitioners take, but five sort of main ones have to do with not killing, not stealing, not lying, not engaging in sexual misconduct. And then the last is not to engage in mis um, intoxicants. So right away, we're kind of faced with a bit of a dilemma um, if we want to consider the role of psychedelics in Buddhist practice. Um, something interesting that's been said is that this precept um, really has a lot to do with sort of protecting our mind from breaking the other four precepts. So if we're engaging in intoxicants, we're more likely, um, you know, to kind of fall into these other um, wrong paths, we might say. Um, and so there are some people who, instead of using the term psychedelics, prefer a term um, entheogen. And so entheogen is a word which means literally um, giving rise to the divinity within, which I think is a really beautiful um, kind of idea. And so there's this differentiation that some people like to make, you know, arguing that psychedelics um, kind of evoke this, this potential for divinity instead of a, a regular intoxicant, right, which really sort of clouds the mind and, um, you know, might actually bring about kind of harmful action. Um, so this is something that we could maybe debate about a, a little bit, you know, should we be thinking about psychedelics um, as an intoxicant or is it something that's in a different kind of category? Um, there's also, I would say, a deep um, danger in psychedelic work of spiritual bypassing. So spiritual bypassing is the idea, um, which I'm sure many of you have heard of, but spiritual bypassing is the idea that we're kind of using a spiritual practice or ideas, uh, particularly when we think that we ourselves are onto something very spiritually important, that we actually bypass some really important emotional work that needs to be done. Um, and so I feel from what I've seen in my um own experience of, um, you know, teaching in the psychedelic program at Naropa, which I'm happy to talk more about, and certainly in my clinical work, that there is a big danger of this. Um, it is very easy to get caught up, you know, in the, the powerful effects of psychedelics, and we can really think that we are onto something spiritually meaningful when, in fact, we're, you know, kind of bypassing something important. And so, I'll be sure to talk a little bit um, more about that today, like how we might know whether we're engaging in spiritual bypassing. Um, sometimes I have likened using psychedelics to the dangers of the Vajrayana Buddhist path. So, you know, in all of these great kind of Buddhist texts, there's always a warning, right, before embarking on Vajrayana study, like, don't take this path, you know, this is a really dangerous path. It's much better to kind of stay with the, with the Mahayana, which is earthy and humble and um, also very powerful. Don't bother with going to the Vajrayana. There's too many dangerous trappings there, right? Have some of you heard of these kind of warnings? Um, so I think psychedelics are a little bit similar like that. It is not a path that you need to take. 
Um, there are other, you know, many more forms of healing, which are safer, which might be more reliable. But then it's like, if you must embark on this path, um, it would be good to be aware of some of the dangers. Um, so like, you know, the Vajrayana path, I think that, um, you know, with, with psychedelic work, there's, there's great risk of harm. There's great risk of confusion. The potential for misconduct, um, I'd say, is, is high. Um, but there's also great possibility. So possibility of what? I will be sure to um, get to that and not just talk about all of the dangers and the risks. Um, but I do think it's important to, you know, kind of um, contextualize um, a little bit. Um, there's another version of spiritual bypassing, which I would say looks a bit like cultural appropriation. And so cultural appropriation has to do with taking elements of other traditions and kind of consuming them um, without a deep connection to those traditions. Um, and, um, you know, so there's a lot happening, as some of you are probably aware, at the kind of legal and judicial um, level today involving psychedelics, um, Oregon has passed um, a ballot measure to legalize psilocybin, and there's work happening there. And then actually in the state of Colorado in the November, um, so any Coloradans, uh, please pay attention. Um, in November, um, those of us who are living in the state of Co Colorado will actually be able to vote on something called the Natural Medicines Act. And this is a ballot measure which will legalize psilocybin and three other um, psychedelic natural medicines for use. So very hot topic. Um, but I'm bringing this in when I'm mentioning um, kind of the danger of spiritual bypassing and um, cultural appropriation because on purpose, peyote was left out of that Natural Medicine Act. And the reason for this is to actually um, uh, protect the, the use of peyote as a sacrament, specifically in Native American communities. Um, so this is, you know, an important danger to be aware of when we're considering um, psychedelic use. Are we kind of really quickly, you know, jumping into wanting to consume other traditions that we're actually not a part of um, and how, um, you know, the, the, the sort of risks of doing that. And so instead of taking other traditions, I've become really interested in using psychedelics to deeply connect with one's own lineage and whatever that might mean. Um, that might mean connecting with one's own ancestors, uh, with their own heritage. Um, and that can include actually both the wisdom as well as shadow aspects um, of one's own kind of ancestral lineage. So that might actually include things like intergenerational trauma, and, um, you know, thinking about ways that our own, you know, kind of ancestors or our own um, heritage might actually have caused um, harm, looking at colonialism, you know, so this is actually wonderful, powerful work um, that can be done um, with, with psychedelics, really kind of going into our own um, uh, lineages in a way, whatever that means for us. Um, another significant risk that can happen with psychedelics is something known as a spiritual emergency. Um, and I'm willing to bet that some people may have known um, people who have gone through a spiritual emergency. It might even be something that you yourself um, have experienced. And so a spiritual emergency um, happens when actually something is so um, powerful that it actually becomes destabilizing. Um, this can also happen, as we probably know, with meditation. Um, this is something that, um, you know, 
anyone listening who may be working at a, a land center, um, you know, that this is something that can happen when people come into really powerful spiritual experiences, even if it's a positive thing, it can be really destabilizing. And so this is a particular um, danger and risk of doing psychedelic work, I would say that the potential for spiritual emergencies um, is high. Um, and so, you know, we might think, well, what is the right set and setting and what's actually meant by safe container? Um, and by that, when I'm, you know, wanting us to kind of consider what a safe container looks like, I don't necessarily mean to actually prevent distress or to prevent crisis. So even with spiritual emergencies, you know, many people who have had them will look back and say, you know, I wouldn't have wished this on someone else, but it was actually one of the most important turning points in my life. And so particularly if we can work with spiritual emergencies in a you know, safe and caring and kind way, it can actually be um, a, a catalyst you know, for really important growth in someone's life. So I'm not really about like preventing spiritual emergencies, but more asking like, what, what, is, what would a safe container look like such that you know, if someone actually needs to safely fall apart, that that could happen and that could happen in a way that is most beneficial to them. So already, right, I'm getting into very kind of, you know, maybe controversial or kind of provocative um, territory. Um, should we actually be entering into um, kinds of, of practices or work with psychedelics where we might um, break open in this way, where, where we might actually fall apart? Um, so this is why I'm saying where, you know, it's not actually, um, in, in my view, psychedelics are not good for all people and not good for all people at all times. So how would we know and, and what might a safe container actually look like? Um, so I want to talk a little bit about psychedelic assisted therapy work. Um, you know, and I would say that in the kind of contemporary moment that this is, um, you know, probably um, one of the, the biggest areas, right, where, where there's a lot of kind of progress happening. There, there's a lot of um, rapid and deep interest in psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, so there's two main kinds of psychedelic assisted therapy, and one is called psycholytic therapy. And that usually involves a lower dose of a psychedelic. Um, and in this experience, the person is still very much in the room, um, still in their body. Um, and really able to kind of engage in dialogue. Um, and so this might be a, a dialogue with a therapist. Um, you know, there's sort of groups who meet, you know, who, who do kind of work together. So the psycholytic low dose um, variety is really excellent, um, you know, for being able to have this kind of dialogue and engage in therapeutic work where you're, you're still very much um, online, I would say, and in the room. And then there's high dose psychedelic therapy. And so these are higher doses of psychedelics, um, which tend to involve things like ego death, um, which I don't know, to me sounds pretty terrifying. <laughs> I don't know a better way to say it. Uh, maybe when we get to the Q and A period, people might have some ideas, but um, ego death is usually the way that it's talked about. And so in this way, you know, the sort of sense of self, sense of one's body, sense of, you know, personhood, time and place is really sort of um, out the window at that point. 
Um, there can be a dissolving of boundaries of self and other. There can be kind of a dissolving into um, the universe in some way. Um, and so I'd like to say that both psycholytic and psychedelic therapies have been shown um, to be effective. Um, and so I'll talk a little bit about some of the studies that are happening um, in the field of psychedelic assisted therapy, which is not to say that um, there's not lots of other important and good ways to be doing um, psychedelics, but um, it is interesting that the sort of conventional, you know, scientific paradigms of clinical trials and, um, you know, neuroscientific work, uh, you know, that these fields have become deeply, deeply interested in psychedelics, particularly in the last five years. So some of the work that's being done in clinical trials um, involves um, the use of MDMA for PTSD. Um, and this is probably going to be the first psychedelic that's uh, approved, uh, perhaps as soon as 2023, which is next year. Um, so that's actually pretty amazing. Um, there's also a number of clinical trials that are investigating the use of psilocybin and end-of-life care. Um, I saw that someone put into the chat earlier, um, there's a lot of interest in um, a plant um, mixture called ibogaine for addiction, um, which um, so far looks to be um, incredibly effective um, for working with addiction. And, you know, these studies and clinical trials have actually been so groundbreaking that FDA has given a special um, status, which is known as breakthrough status, to both MDMA and PTSD. Um, so this happens when, you know, things like cancer drugs or uh, other medicines are just shown to be so um, effective that FDA actually works to um, expedite approval. So that's pretty amazing to me that the FDA has actually given this status to both MDMA and psilocybin because of how well um, the clinical trials have been. Um, so as I was saying, MDMA is likely but not guaranteed um, to be approved in as early as 2023, and psilocybin is likely to be approved as a legal therapeutic medicine by 2024. Um, it is currently legal to do ketamine-assisted therapy, and so um, I won't go into it so much um, in this talk, but um, you know, ketamine is not a traditional psychedelic, but it has psychedelic properties when used at very low doses. Um, and so this is something that I've been using in my private practice as a therapist. And um, if people are interested in experiencing psychedelic assisted therapy, um, this is something that you're able to do now. It's not yet legal um, to engage in MDMA or psilocybin assisted therapy. Um, and ketamine is, has been studied mostly for treatment-resistant depression, so it really seems to be an amazing um, medicine for working with depression. It's probably also excellent for things like end-of-life, um, working with grief, and sometimes for trauma and anxiety. So different medicines seem to be good therapeutically for different things, which kind of makes sense. It's almost like each you know psychedelic has kind of its own personality, or we might even say like its own realm, you know, where it's, it's really good in. Um, so MDMA, you know, I'd say is so good for trauma because it really allows the person to stay with things exactly as they are. So as I was saying earlier, psychedelic assisted therapy is not really about taking away distress, or it's not about taking away um, pain or suffering. It's, it's, it's sort of the opposite. It's sort of like, how do you actually really stay with um, you know, pain or, or distress that's coming up. 
And so MDMA um, really, really allows people um, to deeply stay with things exactly as they are for a more extended period of time. Um, so what trauma and PTSD tend to do is they tend to make us very hypervigilant against distress. So PTSD symptoms, we could say, are actually protective, right? They, they come with their own pain, but that hypervigilance is really kind of guarding against um, pain or, or distress that we're easily experiencing. So PTSD symptoms are actually very adaptive and very intelligent, um, I'd like to say, um, but they reduce our freedom, right? And so the world of trauma survivors be, has to become very small, right? Because there's this kind of vigilance of, of guarding um, against these traumatic symptoms. So what something like MDMA does um, is it really widens what's known as the window of tolerance. So the window of tolerance is a window where we're able to stay mostly regulated, right? And there's a kind of natural up and down that we experience in life. You know, we have stresses in our day, we have, um, you know, anxiety, activation of all kinds. And as long as we're staying kind of within this window of tolerance, things are mostly okay. So for people who are really dealing with a lot of trauma, you know, it's, it becomes really hard to stay in that window of tolerance. So what MDMA does um, is it, this is a theory, um, I'm saying it like it's, it's what it does. This is a, a theory of, of how it might work, that MDMA could um, actually help to widen that window of tolerance, right? And so during the session, we actually are able um, to stay more and more with, with pain or with distress that's happening. So I would not say that MDMA takes away suffering and distress. It's kind of the opposite. It's more like it allows us um, to kind of be with that pain um, in a way that's safe. Um, and then somehow, because of, we might say, the nature of the human heart, when we actually stop rejecting our experience and just be with what is, um, it is almost always the case or could be the case um, that then we come to a place of deep maitri and self-compassion arises, right? So there seems to be something deeply healing or deeply therapeutic about not rejecting our experience, staying with that pain, staying with suffering, that then we can begin to feel self-love. We can begin to feel self-acceptance. And so this is really, you know, where um, healing occurs. Um, what's interesting about um, psychedelics is that they seem to have access to a kind of timeless space. And so people are often really surprised at what comes up in sessions. And so sometimes people will come in like, oh, I'm really coming to work on this. And then something comes up in the session, you know, maybe from early childhood that they haven't thought of in decades. And so why is that? Um, the organization that is um, bringing MDMA through the clinical trials, which is called MAPS, uh, the therapeutic modality that they teach for people who are training um, to work with MDMA is something called the using the inner healing intelligence. And so that is meant to be the guiding light of how to actually do this kind of psychedelic therapy, rather than the clinician coming in as kind of the expert. Instead, there seems to be something about um, psychedelics and, you know, in this case, MDMA, which really allows people to access their inner healing intelligence. And so then as the therapist, and this is really hard for people, right, especially people with a lot of degrees and training, like what? 
what do you mean I'm not the expert in the room? So these therapists um, actually have to unlearn. They actually have to be trained out of kind of leading with their expertise and sort of psychological theories to get out of the way, right? To then allow this inner healing intelligence um, to come forward. And so um, if we believe in this sort of idea, um, sometimes the inner healing intelligence will sort of guide the psychedelic session in a way that, you know, both the client and the um, therapist could have never really conceived of. So it's a very creative um, kind of imaginative space. There are even, um, you know, really numerous reports of people being able to go back um, even to work with trauma that happened in utero, um, things that happened in um, a birth process. Um, or to work with things in kind of pre-verbal states. Um, I don't know how that works. Um, I don't know if it's true, but it's kind of an amazing idea, um, at, at least to me. Um, but nonetheless, um, there always seems to be some sense of being with in a psychedelic session. And so it's really different from other therapies, at least in the way that um, I have been trained, um, you know, which might call for like a reduction in symptoms. Um, and so psychedelic therapy is much more about, you know, what does it feel like to, to experience depression? What is the wisdom of depression? Um, if there's any uh, therapists or medical professionals here on the call and you're someone who already has a contemplative practice, um, you might be really suited um, for this kind of approach, right? Because this is how we, um, you know, tend to think about things perhaps. Um, and um, so on that topic, um, as JT was, was mentioning um, in my bio, um, some colleagues and myself at Naropa have started a program to train psychedelic assisted therapists. And what we're really interested in is how we might use um, contemplative approaches um, to psychedelic assisted therapies um, really as our kind of guiding light. Um, so, so how is it that, um, you know, and it's not just Buddhist practice, but the sort of full range of, of contemplative um, modalities or methodologies. So from the therapy side, it's actually very hard work, um, I would say, to do psychedelic assisted therapy. And there's a range in how long different medicines last for. But something like MDMA or psilocybin, um, you know, this is a six to eight hour experience. And so often um, these sessions are done with a co-therapy model. So there's two therapists. And I would say that it's probably um, that meditation training is actually the best thing that can help to prepare a therapist to really be with the client and their own inner experiences for that length of time. How to really be present for six to eight hours um, is a pretty challenging task. There might be other um, modes besides meditation, but so far I would say it's, it's the best one that I know of, you know, to, to really develop that kind of awareness, presence, and just, um, you know, the exertion, right? That's, that, as we know of as meditators, to actually stay with something for that length of time. Um, so that's a little bit about what we're up to at Naropa. Um, so I also want to, um, before I sort of turn this, the talk to investigate a little bit about psychedelics and Buddhism specifically, you know, I want to also mention 
that kind of outside of the clinical trials and the kind of medical therapeutic route of using psychedelics, there are a lot of people who are using psychedelics in religious and ceremonial settings. Um, and in my view, you know, this is equally, maybe more so, I don't know, but definitely equally as important to what's happening um, in clinical paradigms. Um, and people are, you know, I would say engaging in really sincere and serious work. Of course, there is a recreational use of psychedelics, which I'm not particularly um, opposed to. Um, but but there's, there's sort of this other category, right, of, of people who are really wanting to engage in um, serious spiritual work um, using psychedelics in those kinds of ceremonial contexts. Um, so there's people who are using ayahuasca and traveling to the Amazon or finding um, groups that are, you know, practicing here in the U.S., um, which are not legal, um, but still people are, are doing this and often deriving, you know, great um, deep meaning and benefit from those ceremonies. And, you know, I'd really like to point out um, that this is not a recreational space. And so I'm sure some of you on the call have heard of um, ayahuasca, um, but this involves something like eight to 10 hours, you know, of, um, of, uh, the, the effects of the, um, brew, which often involves intense purging. So intense, um, vomiting and sometimes diarrhea can occur. So, right. So this is like, this is not a recreational thing that's happening. Um, there can be often terrifying or deeply painful experiences, and so, you know, I'm bringing this in to kind of question, like, what, you know, why, why is it that people feel so compelled to kind of enter into um, an experience like that, right? That can be deeply terrifying, painful. There's the risk of a spiritual emergency. I mean, I don't know about you, but so far, this isn't sounding that great. Um, so there's some, you know, but there's something that is happening. There's some kind of promise or, or possibility. So what, um, what might that look like? Um, I mean, you know, just as an aside, someone might look at something like a datoon and think like, why would I do that? Why would I leave the comfort of my home for a month where I can't have my cell phone and don't have the comforts of home and I'm sitting there on a cushion all day? Um, again, don't know about you, but just the description of that does not exactly sound uh, fun and recreational. And yet we can understand that there's like some other uh, register, right? There's like some other category of experience. Um, so it's not about being fun, but there's something that is really deeply uh, meaningful and important for growth. Um, just to mention, there's also some really compelling community-based projects that are happening. Um, there's a group of Palestinian and uh, Israelis in the Middle East who have been using ayahuasca together, um, you know, to actually work through community healing and intergenerational trauma, which I find to be a really amazing um, project. So there's all kinds of, you know, possibilities or potentials for um, communities uh, maybe to heal in this way. So let's maybe finally uh, turn our attention to uh, psychedelics and Buddhism. What might the promises and possibilities be? So there's a number of excellent um, books that have already been written about, um, you know, kind of exploring psychedelics and Buddhism. And there is some thought, although this is controversial, that, um, 
you know, that there were periods, particularly in, in ancient India, where there was um, the use of Amrita, right? So in some of the Vajrayana Buddhist practices, there's a lot of symbolic kind of visualization and um, depictions of skull cups of Amrita. And there's a lot of, you know, historical and cultural debates about what is that Amrita? What is in there? Um, so some people might have heard the term Selma. Right. So there's all kinds of um, historical debates about whether, you know, these groups in um, ancient India in this Vedic period were actually using some kind of psychedelic or whether this is merely symbolic. Um, so you could read um, like there's a book, uh, Secret Drugs of Buddhism, if you'd like to read a little bit more about that. Um, and then um, some of you might be aware that Timothy Leary and colleagues actually took the um, Bardo Toldal, right, which is the has been wrongly translated as the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and appropriated the text as a guide for navigating LSD or psilocybin experiences. Um, so this seemed to be somehow the closest instruction manual to to navigate these subtle levels of, of consciousness. Um, so there's many fascinating writings out there um, that are kind of, you know, in, investigating this connection between psychedelics and Buddhism. Um, what I thought would be interesting for us to talk about today is the idea of a skillful means. Um, could we think about psychedelics as a kind of skillful means? So we might say a skillful means for what? Um, so probably if psychedelics are not deepening uh, one's capacity for compassion and wisdom, uh, it's probably not quite a skillful means. It might be something else. Um, so maybe we could spend some um, time together invest in investigating how um, or if that might be the case. Um, so I'm sure as some of you know, there is this idea in, um, in the Dharma of the two wings of the bird, right? So one wing is wisdom and one wing is compassion. Most of us tend to fall a little bit too far in one direction. And there's, you know, of course, all kinds of important writings about what can happen when there's um, maybe too much wisdom um, or too much compassion. And so could it be the case that psychedelics actually have, you know, help us to find this equilibrium? How might psychedelics ha help us on both the compassion side and the wisdom side? Um, so I'll talk a little bit about um, uh, wisdom, maybe to start out with. So something that psychedelics tend to do is they tend to reveal that things are not as solid, right, as we perceive them to be. Oh, great. I'm seeing some uh, smiles in the group. <laughs> so I'm not just randomly throwing this out there, right? So this is a very common thing that happens. Psychedelics really tend to reveal that reality is open um, and that there's kind of radical possibility this might also be why um, it can be anxiety provoking to take a psychedelic, right? To suddenly feel like that deep groundlessness, to suddenly feel the ground kind of drop beneath us. Um, but is it the case that that is somehow bringing us into, you know, a, a, a greater view of reality, right? And so it's wisdom to see the nature of reality, the wisdom to see, um, uh, emptiness, right? That, that kind of view. Um, so something we were talking about recently in one of my classes at Naropa, when we were studying um, the concept, the Buddhist concept of emptiness, is um, some of the students were observing that they didn't think emptiness was really quite a good English translation. 
And uh, we were talking about that some other terms, you know, might be more suitable. And um, something came up um, in that discussion that maybe freedom would actually be a better way to talk about the Buddhist view of emptiness, that things really are not fixed, right? And so there's this kind of deep, radical um, opening there, you know, there's this deep possibility, things are not foreclosed. And um, so this is something, you know, that is um, very common, right, when people are taking psychedelics, like really seeing the way that things are not solid. Um, a number of people in the chat, and I was sort of hoping this might be the case, they were saying that when they think about psychedelics, what comes to mind for them is the idea of exploring consciousness and exploring the mind. So without a doubt, psychedelics really can allow us you know, to explore um, different layers of the mind and maybe even the nature of reality and really kind of have this direct experience. But then a question might emerge, are these really true, genuine experiences? So that, that doesn't that sound so cool and amazing? Wow, investigating like layers of consciousness. Well, how do we know that that's actually what's happening and that we're not just kind of like fabricating, right? This idea of like, oh, I'm on this amazing spiritual exploration and going deep into my mind. Um, how, how do we actually know? And so... Um, um, you know, for anyone who's read Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, um, if you haven't read that book, uh, please read it, uh, particularly if you are interested in psychedelics, right, where there is, um, there is a trap that in doing this kind of work and having an interest and in really exploring consciousness and the layers of our mind, we can pretty easily, right, become convinced that like, we're definitely onto something quite um, amazing, Right. And it might actually just be our ego kind of fabricating something. So um, I would say that this is always uh, possible. This is always present in psychedelic work. Um, and if, you know, if we're not aware of this possibility, um, it might even just be um, um, bound to happen. Right. And so if we don't accept that, um, we might be sort of going off in the wrong direction. Um, so how might we know? Um, what I would say is, um, you know, things that tend to have a genuine long lasting quality um, in, in my view, um, tend to have a very earthy kind of quality, right? And so there can be all these like fleeting, amazing experiences. Um, I guess, you know, probably for anyone who's a meditation instructor, right? This is a part of the training that we get, like students, Meditation students don't want a boring experience. They want to have like amazing spiritual revelations on the cushion. I'm saying students, but I think all of us are this way. Who wants to have the boring mundane when we could be having like amazing realization? So there must be something about the mind. There must be something about the human experience, which precludes us, right, to wanting to have these kind of amazing experiences, but I would say that, um, you know, in my experience of working as a psychedelic therapist, um, you know, I have been amazed at some of the um, realizations that people have had. And the ones that really tend to be um, very long lasting don't always have that like, you know, fantastical quality. They, they can be very um, earthy. So one example that comes to mind 
when I was doing training in um, ketamine assisted therapy, there was actually um, this family um, who was there in the training. Like they had a bunch of therapists in the training and, um, and the parents um, were actually there. And I was talking to the, the mother um, who was a woman in her, she's probably in her mid seventies. And they um, a couple years ago had actually lost their son to cancer. And she described, um, you know, she previously had no interest in psychedelics, but, um, you know, just to get some kind of um, healing from the intense grief that she was experiencing, she said that ketamine was really the thing that helped her the most, um, more so than any um, religious practice, or she also tried, you know, a number of different psychedelics. It was really ketamine that seemed to help her. Um, and what she said, you know, is that ketamine really brought her into an experience where she was able to see that the, the veil between life and death was just like light thin, you know, that, that the realm of death and kind of what happens beyond was, you know, all one thing. Um, and that was really what brought her the most kind of peace in terms of grief with her son. So that's an example of what I mean when I'm saying that, um, you know, psychedelics do seem to allow people to kind of explore consciousness and the nature of reality. And one way, you know, perhaps of knowing, right, whether is some whether something is kind of um, genuine, or falling more into that spiritual materialism realm is, um, you know, the degree to earthiness, the degree to which it actually is something that, you know, people are able to carry on into their life in a way that brings about more connection, um, not separation. So I'll maybe talk about that a little bit more at the end as well. Um, you know, there's also these stories. Um, I feel like I have to mention this and I don't know, maybe some of you have even, um, been around this happening, but there's these stories of great llamas, um, taking psychedelics, right. Their students said like, Oh, you know, can you, do you want to try some of this LSD or, um, ketamine, right. There's these stories out there. And a lot of these stories, you know, say that when these great llamas took psychedelics with their students to their astonishment, like not that much happened. Right. And, and the various teachers were like, yeah, okay, whatever. So I don't really know what to make of those anecdotes. Um, but I felt it would be remiss not, not to mention that these stories are out there. And so what might this tell us? Um, I don't know. I'd like to also explore a little bit about um, the idea of a bodhisattva vow and how psychedelics might um, somehow uh, connect to that. So if we have a bodhisattva vow, that means that we're willing to do whatever it takes to relieve suffering. Um, and so certainly the topic of Buddhism and psychedelics might fall into the crazy wisdom category. Um, so could it be the case that um, if psychedelics help, if they bring about healing, then why would they be incompatible with Buddhist practice? So even though I sort of devoted like half of this talk, you know, to talking about all the dangers and the pitfalls and warnings um, from a very, you know, basic ordinary point of view, if they are helpful to people, um, if they help relieve suffering, why, why would they be incompatible with the Buddhist path? I mean, that's, sort of an ordinary kind of question. So 
I want to give a few more examples of how psychedelics might actually um, occasion a, a chance to really deepen more into uh, Maitri and compassion. Um, so there's numerous um, reports, and, and I think this is part of why um, MDMA is so likely to become um, FDA approved in the next year, um, that there's many, many reports out there by veterans um, who, you know, who have been dealing with um, PTSD for long periods of time, um, who have tried all kinds of therapy, and for some reason, MDMA seemed to be the thing that helped the most. And something that you find in many of these stories is that um, the MDMA or other psychedelics um, really helped really help them to deepen into compassion for the whole experience, right? So not just kind of their own suffering, their own trauma, but really leaning into the whole experience, right? So relating to the people who are there with them um, and especially really understanding, you know, the, the plight of their so-called enemies and just that whole experience of war, right? So seeing like, wow, there's no separation between myself and, you know, these um, so-called enemies. Um, and, you know, then there can be a lot of sadness that emerges. Um, and the quality of it, I would say, is very much like what Trimpa Rinpoche referred to as the genuine heart of sadness. Right. And so it's this kind of love, this kind of feeling of compassion, but it has a deep, sad quality to it. Right. And it's also the sadness of, you know, really seeing like what we do to one another in the human realm. So there's something about, you know, again, um, the psychedelic work, which brings people more deeply into their pain. So it's a little counter to what you know, often tends to happen in sort of conventional um, therapeutic work, right? And so why is it that moving more deeply or actually immersing, you know, into this kind of um, sad realm and really feeling deeply, there's something about that that seems to have really powerful effects. There is a really interesting study that I wanted to mention as well, which I can't wait to see the results of. Um, this is happening in um, Toronto, I believe, which involves um, one uh, member of a couple who has PTSD and then, but both members of the couple actually take MDMA together, right? And so there's this idea that, um, you know, to really have a deep effect of, of working with trauma um, that the context of a, of a couple or a family, you know, that this could actually be something uh, deeply meaningful. And so that's a study that I have my eye on. Um, so I also wanted to um, offer um, an example of a psychedelic experience that I had um, that was really um, deeply important um, for me and, and which I think um, you know, played some, some kind of role in my Buddhist practice. And so this was an experience that I had um, when I was doing um, ketamine-assisted therapy training. All the uh, trainees, we had to have our own experiences of ketamine, which I think was so important so that we would actually know, like, what this, you know, what this was like. Um, and so during this experience, um, it was probably maybe four or five months before that um, I had 
actually experienced a miscarriage. And so this is something that not a lot of people uh, talk publicly about, um, and I'm happy to do that. And um, this was before I had my uh, daughter who was born four months ago. So, um, you know, that was a really deeply um, painful experience for me. And so during my ketamine experience, I began to um, see all of these flowers. And so ketamine is very, the experience is very colorful. There's a lot of um, visions that happen. And so there were all of these flowers, right? And uh, especially sunflowers. And they were all like facing different directions. So I'm a Dorje Kasung. And so um, if you've ever seen a Dorje Kasung sitting around a shrine room, like they all face in different directions, right? And they sort of make eye contact and check in with each other. And they're really kind of holding space. So this began to happen in my um, ketamine journey that all these flowers, you know, and I had the realization of like, oh, it's just like Kasung, you know, and they're all kind of looking out for me in a certain way. And then I began to somehow get the sense that all of these flowers were actually like women, that all of these women all around the world were kind of looking out for one another. Um, and then there was a sense of all of these flowers. So it was like all flowers are women and all women are flowers. And then there was the sense that all these other women all across the world who had experienced uh, miscarriage and uh, loss of a child, that they were all sort of there and they were all then bringing me flowers. And so this was an incredibly um, healing experience for me, um, really just to feel, you know, and as you can tell from what I'm saying, there's nothing in there about like getting rid of my suffering. You know, in some ways I was feeling that pain more deeply, but it was in the context of realizing that like, oh, right, like so many women, you know, all around the world who were all there kind of watching, um, you know, holding space for me and all bringing flowers, you know, that, that I was kind of interconnected in this way. Um, you know, so I'm very happy to share this kind of personal story um, to, you know, to really illustrate what can happen in the psychedelic realm. And this is such a, um, you know, this kind of, of process, right, of first really acknowledging the pain, right? And then broadening out to all the others. Um, this is something, as we know, is um, a very Buddhist idea and is a very Buddhist um, thing, right? That can happen through meditation, through compassion practice, through Tonglen. And so this is part of what I'm saying that, um, you know, I don't think there's any need to do psychedelics, right? That we could really get everything that we needed through the Buddhist path through Buddhist practice. Um, however, if we want to, if we choose, um, there is this possibility. And, you know, so I wanted to offer some examples of how this might actually allow us, you know, to really deepen into our practice in a way. Um, now that I'm a mom with a four month year old, um, you know, this, that ketamine experience, which at this point was, um, you know, I don't know, more than a year and a half ago, it's still so close to me. And when my daughter was born, you know, I noticed like immediately all the moms were coming, like all the moms out there, all the women out there, you know, they were all coming in to offer food, to offer advice, 
to offer, you know, can I come over and hold the baby so you can take a shower? They were all coming, you know, and it, so it's almost like I was kind of primed in that psychedelic experience to recognize something, right. Of the ways that women in particular really watch out for each other and kind of come into these, you know, really um, powerful moments in one another's lives, right. Of, of wanting to bring something uh, helpful. And so, um, you know, it's something that um, was not just like a cool experience that happened once, you know, but it's actually something that's really become a deep metaphor for me. And I something I hope to deepen, not through like doing more and more psychedelics necessarily, but, but really actually through my Buddhist practice. Um, so before we move into um, our Q&A and discussion period, I again want to just, you know, return to this idea of how do we know if psychedelics are beneficial? to ourselves or others. And so I would conclude with this idea of, are we becoming more and more isolated? Are we becoming more and more like obscure and eccentric in our thinking, more arrogant, um, you know, somehow believing that we're more realized than others with these like amazing ideas and realizations. Um, to me, that is not sounding so good. Um, or, um, are psychedelics helping us to become more forgiving, more grounded, more able to be with and appreciate all kinds of people? Um, do we have more sense of humor? Do we have more willingness to help? Do we have greater capacity to not turn away in the face of war and trauma and atrocity? Um, this to me is a good benchmark. Are we becoming more connected? Or are we becoming more rigid and isolated? So I will uh, stop there and maybe we can open up to some discussion. I have a couple of hands up here. Um, yeah, so maybe we could hear from um, Rainbow. I absolutely love the tiger. Yeah, that's my kitty cat, but anyway. <laughs> love it. I have a specific question and you kind of touched on it, but I'm super interested in, I've taken psychedelics in all kinds of ways and they've been beneficial, but I always think you need to know the intention of why you're taking them. That's super important. So I'm looking into investigate and you mentioned ketamine for end of life experiences. And if there's any other ones or how you could take them legally and are they typically used for acceptance of death or getting in touch with the death experience or pain management? Oh, okay. Great, great question. Know. Yes, yeah. actually all of the above. And so um, ketamine can be extremely helpful for people who are approaching end of life um, to deal with end of life anxiety. Ketamine can be very helpful for people who are um, experiencing grief at the loss of loved ones. And you mentioned pain. There's some really interesting studies that are happening right now looking at um, ketamine and how it uh, benefits people who experience chronic pain. Um, so ketamine is absolutely um, legal. Um, and, um, you know, I'm happy to um, leave my email in the chat. And if people would like um, referrals um, or for how to actually find um, a good ketamine assisted therapist, I'd be happy to help with that. Um, in terms of end of life, there's a number of amazing clinical trials that are happening, especially with psilocybin. And so if you go to clinicaltrials.gov, you can actually do a search uh, for psilocybin and that will show you ongoing clinical trials where you could potentially become 
um, a participant in that study. Um, but right now it's, um, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is like soon to be approved. Um, so the work that I was doing with MDMA was in the context of a clinical trial. Um, but ketamine can be, um, for some people, um, can be a really excellent option of something that you're able to do now. So let's go to uh, Tulio. Hi, Sarah. I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm here in Brazil. Um, watching this meeting so happy because this is something that I haven't spoken so much here in Brazil, even being a place that we can have this kind of experience, especially with ayahuasca. And I ha I am like a type of godfather is as a, we call like this here, like a godfather, something like that, that works mm -hmm. with ayahuasca and, and people. And my, my history comes from this, come from this mixing between Buddhism and ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. And for me, it came totally naturally because it came from a depression stage, living in the world, normal world, not in the temple. I have I have uh, an initiation as bodhisattva, so I did the bodhis bodhisattva voice. And I live it as a monk for one year in a Chan uh, traditional uh, Buddhism, uh, it's Buddhism from China. And, and after that in the world, I really just, I, I, I did, I, I had this kind of experience with a deep depression. And yeah, ayahuasca came by an Jungian, Jungian psychology. It's correct to say like that? Yes. Mm -hmm. Anal analytical psychology. So I had my first experience doing this kind of, of uh, therapy by a Jungian psychology. Uh, so yeah, I, I can I can say for you that everything that you told here about the experience is uh, correct. And but it is 12 years drinking ayahuasca and mm -hmm. two years offering this for some friends and, and people here in Brazil, but not so much people because Buddhism is new uh, as our work with the ayahuasca here so it's something that i'm i have i have uh how can i say for you can you understand my accent yes i can <laughs> it's it's something totally new that i'm working and i i don't know i had contact with the with the uh the reporter just one year ago watching the 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 documentary and I felt that this kind of crazy wisdom has totally something, has something about the, the experience that I'm having with uh, ayahuasca and Buddhism here. So it makes sense. I can say a lot of things about my experience. I think that maybe in another opportunity, I can talk with you about that. Okay. Wonderful. It's so great to hear from you and so happy to know your experience and make the connection with you. Thank you. Um, Let's go to uh, Michael. Hello. Um, so uh, I wanted to say about ayahuasca. Um, it sounds like Tulio may have a lot more experience than me, but um, first of all, the, I used to belong to uh, an ayahuasca church, and mm -hmm. I'm in the Bay Area, uh, California, and it's actually they it's completely legal to do ayahuasca with them in the United yes. States. They want to, mm -hmm. there's a Supreme court case. So there is a way to do it legally. 
Yeah. I think they have what they call a nucleo in Denver. So someone who's in the Boulder area, if you're interested, that's one way. There is a lot of religion that goes along with it, but it's not necessarily uh, an obstacle. And in my experience, um, you know, ayahuasca can't, there can be a lot of vomiting and stuff, but not necessarily. I learned over time that um, not eating for several hours ahead of time and, and being learning. I mean, I've done it maybe a hundred times, which makes me a baby compared to the other people in the church, but be being able to be with very strange physical feelings, physical slash emotional feelings. And I, I looked at the kind of training with ayahuasca to part be about learning to just be with it and be with the things that came up during it like you were saying about um uh something else but but i also found that for me most of the time it it was a quicker experience than say mushrooms that like within three hours sometimes four and on rare occasions a little bit more but Usually it was over by then. So thank you so much for anyway, sharing. thank you. Yeah, much to get into there for sure. Thank you, Michael. Um, Paul, nice to see you. Hi, Sarah. Hi, good to see you. Good. How yeah. are you? Good. I'm here in uh Pazcuaro, Mexico at Casa Huerma. Yeah. Well, I had a few questions. One of them was that. I understand from my reading and watching some documentaries that the actual effects of psychedelics uh, are can therapies can be long term. Yes. In that it only takes a few treatments and it, it has lasting, those treatments have lasting effects. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Mm hmm. The other thing I've I've had done some reading the use of ketamine for PTSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a challenge because I had seven years ago I had a serious uh, traumatic brain injury resulting from a being attacked, which oh. so which resulted in hospitalization and brain damage and blah blah blah. But mm-hmm. differentiating between the PTSD part and the traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've worked with anybody or heard or know of the use of ketamine in those type of therapies when it comes to PTSD and traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. And my last question is related to, are you aware of medical insurance covering ketamine uh, assisted therapies? Okay, all good questions. Um, if I forget them, Paul, you, you can remind me. Um, but so the first one um, about the long lasting effects. So the MDMA studies, um, the phase three clinical trials revealed that 67% of people no longer met the criteria for PTSD. And that is an amazing statistic. And this was after three sessions. 
um, to be eligible for those PTSD clinical trials, you actually had to meet a criteria for moderate to severe PTSD. So in the little bit of work that I did on that clinical trial, most people who tried to become a participant actually um, screen failed. Like they, they actually failed the screening because they, they, they were not severe enough in their symptoms, which I think is amazing that MAPS, that organization chose to do that, right? So they were more interested in what was actually, you know, seeing if the, the medicine could benefit rather than like getting their trials through. So 67% of people with moderate to severe PTSD no longer met that criteria after just three sessions. So that's quite amazing. It's even the case um, 12 months later, and there was even some subset of people who even did even better after a year. So that's amazing. And that really suggests, right, that it's not just like a peak experience, people get better, and then they kind of go back to how they were before. Um, so why that is, um, I don't know, um, but it, it absolutely is the case, uh, particularly with MDMA and probably psilocybin. Ketamine, there have been some studies that show that there can be something where people need to kind of return and get um, boosters, maybe not unlike the COVID vaccine, <laughs> that, that there, there can be a really helpful period. And then maybe some, you know, six months later or a year later that it can be helpful for people to go back and do some more sessions. Um, so your second question was about um, head injuries and TBI. Um, yes, I, I have heard of this um, being helpful for some people. Um, in order to do ketamine assisted therapy, you do need to work with a, a psychiatrist or another prescriber. And so, you know, they would be able to work with, um, people to really determine, you know, if, if it would be the right, um, kind of path for them, but I have heard of this in terms of insurance, um, it's limited. Um, it's very limited, um, in terms of insurance companies, um, covering these sessions. There's a really interesting organization called Enthea is E-N-T-H-E-A, which is um, a nonprofit in the U.S., which is currently trying to put together an insurance model for psychedelic assisted therapy. So in general, despite how like incredibly amazing, you know, <laughs> any of these um, studies or these therapeutics are, if they're only um, able to be accessed by um, wealthy people who can afford, right, to pay out of pocket, um, then to me, it's not, um, it, it has very, very limited benefit. And so I hope that as much as people are out there, you know, working on the therapeutic potential and kind of spiritual pathways that I hope just as many people out there are working on um, access um, so that, you know, people who really need them are, are able to access these medicines. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Um, how about Jenny? Thank you. Um, thank you so much for just this. It was just such a rich uh, talk and also just for your personal story. And it was just the level of vulnerability and um, in depth and meaning that you found in that and just really embodying that that was an integration process for you. Mm -hmm. Um. I am a therapist in LA and um, I have clients who are sort of exploring, 
you know, psychedelics on their own. And then they're kind of like coming to therapy to like process the experience. Right. So that I hadn't really thought about getting any training as a psychedelic assisted therapist Mm -hmm. um, until I found that that so many of my clients were actually kind of already trying to integrate and kind of extract their experience. So, um, yeah, I'm also an art therapist and, uh, you know, it, it works as a really, that's also a really good tool for that. But do you have any kind of referrals or any kind of, um, any kind of advice or guidance on how to integrate it when you're integrate that experience when you're not sort of in someone's care, like they're not in my care Mm -hmm. while they're processing it. And from what I understand, um, the type of therapy that you do is really like offering that container in that time frame, in the time Mm -hmm. that they're uh, sort of experiencing the effects. Um, yes. And I also have clients similar to you who are, who are mm-hmm. using psychedelics on their own. And then they, you know, want to do that integration work in therapy. Um, and that's kind of what's put out there, right? Like do it safely, you know, in the clinical context with a trusting therapist. And so a lot of therapists are asking like, well, how, okay, how, how do we support this experience? Um, and so certainly at, um, uh, Naropa and our Center for Psychedelic Studies, you know, we are um, actually right now looking at offering um, a workshop for exactly what you're talking about. Therapists who are, um, you know, potentially want to know about the principles of, of doing integration um, in that context. And there's, I can send you some other um, resources as well. But I think um, you mentioned art therapy. I would say somatic therapy is um, incredibly helpful. Um, really in some ways, encouraging people to hold the sacredness of their experience in ways that transcend just verbal processing. Mm -hmm. There's something that tends to happen. I think this is true also of like any kind of spiritual experience that when we put it into words, it like kind of loses its potency, right? Or we're trying to explain like, oh, how amazing, you know, this insight or this experience was. And then it just, it's really difficult, right? It has this ineffable quality. So I think anything that you can do to really help people hold the sacredness of their experience without necessarily needing to verbally, you know, process it or explain it so much, paradoxically, maybe like helps people to then really integrate it into their being, you know, so not being afraid to maybe having more silence than you might usually have, like really bringing in, you know, letting people do art. Um, sometimes, you know, inviting clients if they'd like to play music to share, you know, what the experience was like for them. Um, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, certainly any, um, somatic training, you know, that, that you might have, or that you might be interested in doing, I think can be really, really helpful. Okay, great. Thank you. That's really cool. Yes. Um, JT, do we have time for Roger? Oh, I think we have time for Roger. Yeah. Okay. Take it away, Roger. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll try to keep it to less than an hour. Um, <laughs> I wanted to bring up Ibogaine. Uh, it's something that you haven't mentioned much. And um, PTSD, particularly with veterans, yeah. has um, become quite 
a powerful tool. And um, for those of you who are not that familiar with Ibogaine, it's um, a plant medicine from comes from Africa and it is of, considered to be the, um, I don't know, the deepest inner, uh, whereas I, it, it's a, a root experience going deep into your past and your uh, inner workings. Um, there's been a lot of work with veterans and um, it's definitely very, very, very powerful for addiction work. And it's illegal in the U.S., mm -hmm. but um, not illegal in Mexico and much of Latin America and some other parts of the world. So uh, there's an organization, I believe MAPS is involved, but it's uh, through, I, I guess if you Google veterans and Ibogaine, um, where veterans are able to get some financial assistance to come to Mexico and do uh, Ibogaine treatments. And we've, I work at an Ibogaine clinic in Mexico in Tepatzlan, and uh, we've had recent experience with veterans who have, uh, I mean, one guy just was here who, uh, I guess his combat experience was pre 9-11, so it must have been Desert Storm or something. And he said he's lost 20 or 30 friends to suicide since, he, since his service. Mm -hmm. And that suicidal thoughts have been part of his life for almost every day since he got out of the service. But having done Ibogaine, he said he hasn't had a single suicidal thought since his entire demeanor has changed. He's, he's got a swimming pool on his property. He's never been in. And since he got back from here two months ago, he's swimming every day. Um, just radical change. And it's such a radical change that he's offered to sponsor other veterans who need financial assistance to come down here. So it's an extremely potent tool for PTSD and also for addictions, but spiritually has implications that are far reaching. Um, but for addictions in particular, and turn, talking about Bodhisattva vow, my experience of working with addictions in uh, Vermont, I was a therapist there, for years and um, the American treatment for like opiate addictions and alcoholism and so on, are, uh, the success rate is dismal. Mm -hmm. um, people come to see us here. Um, usually uh, we're working with opiates, cocaine, methamphetamines, alcohol, um, others, but mostly those. The um, success rate, if you can measure anything like that, after three months is radical. I mean, it's, there's 75 to 80% of our people are still clean three months later. 
and they don't go through horrendous withdrawals or cravings. Um, so it's a very powerful tool. It's also a 36 hour experience. And um, there's a lot of attention paid to aftercare and integration work. So um, there's no question in my mind that it's so much more powerful than the treatment methods available in the US for addictions that it, my experience was having been here and done this with my friends. When I went back to Vermont and I had to look people in the eye who were going through an addiction, life-threatening addictions, and I had, you know, I began in this hand and rehab and AA and everything else in this hand. And I could say, well, I can give you this and keep my license, or I could give you this and you can be actually healthy again. Yeah. I had to move to Mexico. <laughs> so it's, yeah. uh, it's amazing beneficially and uh, you know, I think it's the new age that we're moving through. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Roger, for bringing that in and sharing that and for uh, enacting your Bodhisattva vow. Um, maybe that's a good place for us to end for today. Sarah, thank you so very much. <laughs> uh, what a wonderful, uh, informative um discussion. Um, so we, I think we all wish you uh, tremendous success in navigating the opportunities that are, that are hopefully coming um, as, as you and so many others do the, the hard work and the research to, uh, to, to bring these kinds of therapies uh, into the mainstream for the benefit of no doubt countless beings. So, so thank you so very much. Um, so everyone, uh, just a couple of quick things by way of closing. First of all, um, these uh, sessions are offered free of charge by Shambhala. Uh, and it would be wonderful if you're feeling so inspired, especially after a presentation like this, uh, to make a, an offering of generosity to help continue these, uh, these sessions. And then finally, as always, I'd like to encourage everyone to continue to uh, join us for Sunday gatherings. Uh, this has been just a remarkable series, I think, as, as you all know. Uh, next week, uh, we have uh, a, a session coming on October 2nd with uh, Tara Templin, Sue Gilman, and LaDawn Hagland on finding opportunities uh, for anti-racism work as a Shambhalian. So definitely a societal theme and a timely one at that. Uh, so with that, everybody, I would just like to say thank you all very much. Thank you all. Have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please like and subscribe to the podcast. We hope you can join us again soon. You can find out more about upcoming live Shambhala Sunday gatherings and our podcast at shambhalaonline.org forward slash Sunday dash gatherings forward slash.